a book stuffed with mementos and photos that chronicled the early years of her child's life. Her baby book is a cherished keepsake. And apparently, Mary kept a baby book on her firstborn son. After Jesus' birth, Luke tells us, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Either literally or figuratively, she compiled a baby book, and this became primary source material for Luke's gospel. When Paul was incarcerated in Caesarea, Luke toured the countryside researching the life of Jesus. Imagine him sitting down with Mary and watching the old woman pull out the Son of God's tattered baby book. Chapter 2 records the birth of Jesus. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Augustus, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, was one of Rome's most successful emperors. It was said... He came to a Rome made of bricks and left it a city of marble. Augustus transformed the whole empire with his mighty armies and his extensive roads. They even named a salad after him. A Caesar salad. His given name was Octavius. But in 27 BC, the Roman Senate approached him about taking a title. He could be called king or emperor, or dictator, but he chose Augustus, meaning the revered one. Obviously, the man didn't lack for ego. He claimed to be divine. In fact, this census was intended to show off the vastness of Augustus's kingdom and inflate his already bloated pride. Yet here's the irony. The man who thought he was a god and tried to prove his supremacy through this census was actually being manipulated by the one true God. Micah the prophet, 700 years beforehand, foretold Messiah would be born in the city of Bethlehem. Now God has a problem. Mary is about to deliver, and she's in Nazareth, 100 miles from the God-appointed birthplace. A still small voice won't be enough to prompt Joseph to take his waddling wife on a three-day donkey ride. Nothing short of a royal edict will move this couple, and that is exactly what God arranges. The arrogant Caesar in Rome flexes his muscle and expects the world to squeeze. In reality, he's just a puppet on a string. The shots are being called in heaven, not Rome. A decree from Caesar is the only reason Joseph will uproot his pregnant wife and risk this rugged journey to his hometown of Bethlehem. Notice, too, while the world's eyes were on Rome, the attention of heaven were on these two peasants traveling down the Rift Valley from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I'm sure Rome and its Caesar dominated the day's headlines, the newspapers and newsreels. While Joseph and Mary weren't even a backstory or a story on the back page, we need to understand that the news that often concerns this world isn't what interests God, the kindness of a little old lady, the faithfulness of a father 
to his sons. An offering to your church may not get reported in the AJC, but God sees, God knows. History's most important event is about to occur in Bethlehem. Angels will look on, but not a single reporter, not a camera will be there to cover the story. Verse 4 continues. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Ladies, imagine you're now full term. You're on the back of a donkey. You're riding over rocky terrain for 72 hours straight. I mean, how many restroom stops did Joseph make? The rigors of the journey might have been what triggered Mary's labor. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Hebrew moms would wrap their babies in mummy-like shrouds to simulate the warmth of her womb. Mary wrapped up Jesus and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. When they arrived in Bethlehem, no one rolled out the red carpet. Instead, doors slammed in their faces. Not even the Econa Lodge had a room for God's Son. You know, visit Bethlehem today, and under the Church of the Nativity, you walk down into a series of first century caves. At the time, they were on the city's outskirts. These caves served as stables for the livestock. And they were probably the site of Jesus' birth. Even today, the air below ground is cold and musky, stale and smelly. Hey, when Joseph promised Mary a stable life, an actual stable and manger was not what she was thinking. Years later, when the little boy Jesus left the back door open, like all mothers, Mary shouted, Shut the door! You weren't born in a barn! But he was. God's son, the Lord of life, had peasants for parents. He was born in a stable. No doctor or midwife attended his birth. His first bassinet bassinet was a stone feed trough. His birth announcement came not to royal dignitaries, but to despised and grungy shepherds. Can you imagine a more ironic way to stage history's most important event? God defied every human convention. The king of heaven came to earth, not with glitz and glamour, not with celebrity and with fanfare, but humbly. And he lived the way he came. Today, where do people who serve him get off expecting special treatment? Jesus took the low road, and we should too. Verse 8 tells us, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Hebrew scholar Alfred Edersheim suggests that these were not ordinary flocks, but they were the sheep used in the temple sacrifices. Bethlehem is just a few miles south of Jerusalem in the Jewish temple. In a sense, Jesus was a member of these sacrificial flocks. He was the Lamb of God who would end all sacrifices and take away the sin of the world. It was appropriate that the news of his birth was first announced to the shepherds 
aligned with the temple. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Good news, not just to the Jews, but to all people. Jesus is for all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, and I hate to disappoint you here, but notice the angels were saying, not singing. One of my first favorite Christmas carols is, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I heard it just yesterday. It's great. But it's not accurate. The angels are saying, not singing. For your information, only twice in the scriptures do angels sing. In Job 38, verse 7, at the creation, the angels sang for joy. And in Revelation 5, verse 8, around God's throne, the angels join in with the redeemed and they praise the Lamb. In other words, angels sing in the beginning and when Jesus returns, but while the world remains in its fallen state, angelic lips refuse to sing. But here they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it always inspires me to recall that the angels came to the shepherds. You know, shepherds were dubious characters. When the shepherds came to town, the police were put on alert. See a shepherd and you made sure you kept one hand on your wallet. A shepherd's testimony was not admissible in a first century court. They were so untrustworthy. Yet God's peace and goodwill first came to the worst of people. The light of God came to shady shepherds. That means there's hope for the folks like you and me. Verse 15 tells us, So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. They wanted to see for themselves. And they came with haste, And found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. Notice they didn't sit on what they'd seen. They spread the news of Jesus far and wide. And we should do the same. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things. And pondered them in her heart. I wonder what other stories Mary told Luke that he didn't include in his gospel. Perhaps when we get to heaven, we'll be allowed to browse through Mary's baby book. Well, then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. The shepherds praised while Mary pondered. You know, praising and pondering go hand in hand. Shout it out and mull it over. Witness and worship. Both responses are examples for us to follow and certainly fitting for us at Christmas time. And then verse 21, 
And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. What an appropriate name. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Did you know a newborn male lacks vitamin K, which provides the blood its clotting abilities? It takes seven days for a baby's blood to begin to coagulate. And God knew this detail long before modern science did. The Jewish law of Moses required that every baby boy was to be circumcised on the eighth day. Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the wound shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves are two young pigeons. Now besides circumcision, the Mosaic law also required a Jewish couple to observe two more ceremonies, the mom's purification and the payment of a redemption price. Purification required a sacrifice. If you couldn't afford a lamb, you could buy a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This was the poor man's option. And isn't it interesting that Joseph and Mary qualified for the pauper's exemption? They were poor themselves. And while in the temple, Joseph and Mary bumped into two old saints. Verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, which was a title for the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Christos is Greek for Messiah. He wanted to see the Messiah and then he could die. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And here Simeon quotes Isaiah chapter 52 verse 10. See, the old sage knew what most Jews at the time didn't, and many still don't. Messiah will be a light, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And now that Simeon has seen that light, he's ready to close his eyes. For the final time. And Joseph and his mother marveled at these things which were spoken of him. And I'm sure this was one more marvel that was added to Mary's baby book. But the old man wasn't through. Verse 34. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign which will be spoken against, yes, a sword will pierce your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Simeon makes a full, fourfold prediction of Jesus. First, that this child will be pivotal 
that every human being will rise or fall on their reaction to him. And indeed, that's true. Second, that Jesus will be persecuted. He's a sign which will be spoken against. Third, that he'll cause pain, especially to Mary. For it was said of her that a sword will pierce your own soul also. You remember this was fulfilled at the cross. Mary watched her son bleed and die. The angel called her blessed and highly favored, but it didn't shelter her from being pierced and from seeing her son die a terrible death. And then finally, Jesus will peel back facades and hypocrisy. Simeon says the thoughts of many may be revealed. He'll be pivotal and persecuted. Jesus' life will cause his mother pain, and he'll peel back the intentions of millions. In other words, no one will trifle with Mary's child. He'll be a force to reckon with. Now, there was also a woman, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was also in the temple. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Now, Anna had been married seven years, but that had been 84 years ago. The earliest a Jewish woman could marry was around the age of 13, which would have made Anna at least 104 years old. And instead of remarrying, she had given herself totally to God. She had lived in the temple and had performed chores for the priests. And Anna had a bucket list. It was short. She wanted to see the Messiah. And on this day, it happened. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord, and she spoke of him, of Jesus, to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Verse 39 So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And what was it like over the next several years to parent the Son of God? How do you raise the God-man? In his book, God Came Near, Max Licato, he tries to answer this question. He has a chapter entitled, 25 Questions for Mary. I love his questions. Here are a few. When Jesus saw a rainbow, did he ever mention a flood? Did you ever feel awkward teaching him how he created the world? (laughs) When he saw a lamb being led to the slaughter, did he act differently? How did he act at funerals? Did the thought ever occur to you that the God to whom you were praying was asleep under your own roof? Did you ever catch Jesus gazing at the flesh on his arm while holding a clot of dirt? And did you ever think, that's God eating my soup? Mary probably had answers to these questions that she had tucked away in her baby book. What life was like caring for Jesus? We're not sure. He was certainly taught by his parents the scriptures from an early age. 
He learned to trade. He followed his father's, his foster father's footsteps and became a carpenter like Joseph. Though a tiny village, Nazareth sat at the crossroads of three major trade routes. The strangers were in town. It exposed Jesus to various people and to different cultures. Nazareth was also just across the valley, about four miles southeast of a town called Sephorus. It was the summer retreat for the Jewish Sanhedrin. Tradition says that Sephorus was where Mary spent her childhood. Perhaps she had relatives there and visited often. Joseph and Jesus may have found carpentry work in this bustling town. In Zephorus, perhaps a young Jesus could have been taught by rabbis on vacation. The most brilliant minds in Judaism added to his education. It's interesting to hypothesize. In verse 40, Luke summarizes, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Jesus exhibited unusual spiritual strength and keen discernment as a young boy. From an early age, it was obvious the hand of God, the grace of God, was upon him. I'm sure Luke spent days browsing through Mary's baby book. Why he didn't record more stories, we're not sure. But he closes chapter 2 with an incident that he probably thought was indicative of Jesus' childhood. Verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. All Jewish males were required to journey to the temple each year for three major feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And when they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now before you report Joseph and Mary to defects for child neglect, you need to understand a Jewish pilgrimage. These families would caravan together from wherever they lived up to Jerusalem. It was like a party train. The women would all be up front catching up with each other, chit-chatting back and forth. The men and boys would be in the rear. It was a party all the way to Jerusalem and all the way home. It was one of those times Mary thought Joseph had Jesus. Joseph thought Mary had Jesus. Neither parent realized that their son wasn't with them until they had stopped that night to camp. After teaching this morning, I had several people come up and talk about when they left their kid at church. Dad thought, Mom had him. Mom thought, Dad had him. It's probably happened to all of us at one time or another. In verse 46, they rushed back to Jerusalem searching frantically. Now, so it was... That after three days, three days it took to find him. They found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Imagine Jesus, equal to a sixth grader at this time, 
with the Jewish scholars discussing Scripture, impressing them with his knowledge. So when they saw him, that's Mary and Joseph, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? They should have known that he'd be attending to heavenly business. You see, Jesus lived in two worlds. He was firmly planted on this earth, but he also lived with his ear to the heavens. And here's the question for you and me. In whose business are we embroiled? Are we so wrapped up in our own stuff that we neglect the concerns of heaven? I hope not. But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. Notice Luke included this story to show that even at 12 years old, Jesus had a sense of who he was and what he'd come to do. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Notice he was subject to his parents. That's a good word to some of our young people here today. If Jesus was subject to his parents, it's wise that you be too. And here too is a model for a conscientious parent. A parent should be asking, is my child growing in wisdom, intellectually, and in stature or physically, and in favor with God, that's spiritually most important, and in favor with men, that's socially. See, here's a balanced upbringing for your child. Children need to grow intellectually and physically and spiritually and socially. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother, Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. And here Luke is nailing down a date. That's what he's doing. When historians connect all of these dots, they arrive at the date 29 AD, which meant both Jesus and John were in their early 30s, early to mid-30s, when their ministries began. At that time, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. You remember John was the son of Zacharias, the priest. Zacharias had been spoken to by the angel there in the temple about John's birth. John has grown. He's a priest by pedigree, but he has abandoned now the corrupt religious system of the day. The priests who were his peers lived a life of ease and opulence. John was just the opposite. No fancy robes for John. He wore a camel's hair coat. He dined on locusts and wild honey, a poor man's food. Sun-dried locusts have the texture of shrimp. The honey helps. Amidst the rigors of the wilderness, John developed a simpler, stronger, more authentic walk with God. Now the time has come for John to speak to the nation. 
And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. John's message was twofold. Repent and be baptized. In other words, turn from sin to God, then prove it publicly by being baptized. This was his stump speech. And it was unusual. For only Gentiles were baptized as a sign of conversion. Yet John was baptizing Jews. See, these repentant Jews were getting real. They, they were admitting that they were no more righteous than the Gentiles. Revival was occurring in Israel. In verse 4, Luke quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The Old Testament predicted that Messiah would have an advanced man, a forerunner. John was called the voice crying in the wilderness. He says, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Before a foreign king visited a country, the local DOT was sent out to level the hills and straighten out the dangerous bends in the road and pave the potholes. Every effort was made to smooth out the roads. And in a spiritual sense, this was John's job. He was to prepare for Jesus' arrival. He plowed up the pride of the people's hearts and he readied them. He readied their faith for the Messiah. And John did so boldly, verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Notice John doesn't mince words. He could care less about upholding the status quo or appeasing the establishment. John compares the religious leaders of his day to a dangerous brood of poisonous snakes. This man was amazing. To our knowledge, he never worked a miracle, never taught in the temple, and yet people flocked to hear him. How did John attract such crowds? It was because the people sensed in John the power of the Holy Spirit. They were tired of hollow religion, and they hungered for an authentic relationship with God. Rather than sensational, John was sincere he had what the people wanted. The church today could learn from his example. And John tells the crowd, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. See, John taught a behavioral about face. In other words, turn from your sinful ways. While the Jews taught just the opposite. They trusted in their lineage, their bloodline. They thought they were okay because of who they were. They shared no concern with what they did. John emphasized a turn in one's behavior. The Jews told the line of one's pedigree. They were proud to be Abraham's heirs. And yet John says, that's no big deal. God can turn rocks into rabbis if he wants. 
What makes a true child of God is fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, John insisted on real change. Fruits are evidence of repentance. What kind of fruits are evident in your life? Have you adopted new friends since coming to Christ? Have you altered your habits? Have you changed your pastimes? Are you tangibly showing that you really want to follow Jesus by the way you do life? John would say that you're really not serious about following Jesus unless you're willing to show evidence of change, unless you're willing to show fruits worthy of repentance. He says in verse 9, And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, trees without fruit get axed and end up firewood. Just making a confession, just tipping your hat to religion doesn't cut it with God. He expects more. True repentance is the desire to change. Do you show that desire by how you live your life? So the people ask him saying, what shall we do then? And John gives them a sample of the evidence that God is seeking. Ways to prove that you are sincere about following God. He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let, them, let him do likewise. In essence, if you really want to follow God, then stop living for yourself and start caring about other people. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. In other words, play fair. Be honest. True repentance should be seen in how you conduct business. Sunday confessions need to bleed over into Monday practices if you're truly sincere about living for God. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, and what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. In other words, don't bully people to get your own way or to move up the ladder. Learn to be content. Does your life show fruits of repentance? Verse 15. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. Now you see, a, a rabbi had disciples that did an assortment of meaningful ta menial tasks for him. But the one job too dirty for even a disciple was the removing of the sandals. This was a task reserved for a slave. And here John is saying that he's not worthy to even be Jesus' slave. You remember by lineage, Jesus and John were cousins, but spiritually Jesus was of a different breed. He was on a higher level, and John knew it. John says of Jesus, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John baptized with water which symbolized a turning point, the desire to change. 
But his baptism imparted no power to actually make that change. Whereas Jesus immerses us with the Holy Spirit in fire, or in essence, with God's power and God's passion. You know, for years, I only knew one baptism. The baptism of repentance. And every week, the pastor, he would decipher my sin and he would pound home God's judgment. And I'd come to the altar genuinely sorry. And I would promise to change. But though I wanted to change, I lacked the power and the dynamic to do so. Until I learned of Jesus' baptism. Now I lean into him. Jesus promises us the power to make the changes he desires. See, we have to want to change, then Jesus empowers us to do so. The power comes from Jesus. We supply the want to. In NASA's early days, the problem with space travel was the ability to break out of Earth's gravitational pull. How how can you produce an upward explosion greater than the gravity's downward pull? downward force. That was the the problem. And you know, this mirrors our problem. We want to live pleasing to God, but sin keeps pulling us down. How do we break through? Only Jesus can give me the upward thrust I need. He alone fills me with a Godward push greater than sin's downward pull. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is what lifts me from the gravity of sin it's mine for the asking. It's yours for the asking. God gives the Spirit's power to those who have faith to ask. But Jesus also baptizes with fire or judgment. For John says, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. Technically, John the Baptist was an Old Testament prophet. And here he follows their pattern. He merges Jesus' first and second comings into one prophecy. At his first coming, Jesus baptizes with his Holy Spirit. But at his second coming, he executes a harvest. He will apply his winnowing fan or his pitchfork to separate the wheat from the chaff the righteous from the unrighteous. Verse 18, And with many other exhortations, John preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. This King Herod was an evil man. He committed adultery with his sister-in-law. They both divorced their previous spouses and married each other. Their antics were Jerusalem's soap opera. And John had tuned in. He rebuked them publicly. Adultery and divorce and incest. How could he ignore their sin? At first, Herod Antipas tried to shut John up by locking him up in prison. But that happens later. Verse 21 flashes back to a previous incident. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. 
Once there was a church in New Orleans that caught fire. The fire department doused the flames. And the next day they sent an inspector, who happened to be a Roman Catholic, to survey the scene. Well, this inspector was walking along when he tripped and fell into the baptismal pool, still full of water from the night before. After the inspector had dried off, he asked, he said, who does this church belong to? Someone said, the Protestants. The wet Catholic shook his head and he said, well, I don't know much about them, but I guess I'm one of them now. And just as that Catholic inspector identified with the Protestants through baptism, this is what baptism meant to Jesus. Since our Lord was sinless, he had no need to repent. Thus, he had no need to be baptized. But Jesus was baptized to identify himself with us. We, in turn, are baptized to identify ourselves with him. We're told, and while Jesus prayed... And notice this, Luke is the only gospel writer to mention Jesus praying at his baptism. In fact, we're going to discover that Luke has a fascination with Jesus' prayer life. He speaks about his praying often. While Jesus prayed, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Now I'm sure you realize there are all kinds of speculation as to how Jesus spent his 35 years before he began his ministry. Where did he go? What did he do? Who did he see? What actually happened? And the answer to all those questions is we don't know. The Bible is silent on these years. But what we do know from the Father's affirmation from heaven at his baptism is that in all he did and in all he said, he pleased the Father. Jesus was sinless. And here is a beautiful picture of God, the triune God. We call him the Trinity. We see the Son standing in the water, the Father blessing the Son from heaven, and the Holy Spirit descending upon him as a dove. God is one God, yet he exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see a picture of the Trinity here. Verse 23, now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, history tells us that King Herod, Herod the Great, died in 4 B.C. And we know that Jesus was born before his death. If 29 A.D. was the starting point for his ministry, then that made Jesus about 33 years old when he began. Luke here rounds it off to about 30. Notice, too, Luke calls Jesus Joseph's supposed son. Joseph was just his foster father. Jesus' biological dad was God. Joseph's genealogy appears in Matthew. Luke's, Luke here gives us Mary's genealogy. 
The father's lineage was political. It traced the royal or the kingly line. While the mother's lineage was genetic, it showed the bloodline. One other point, under Jewish law, if Mary had no brothers, her husband was considered her father's son. Thus, her lineage reads, Joseph, the son of Heli. And I'll let you read the rest of Mary's genealogy. One fact you'll notice is that unlike Matthew's family tree, which stops at Abraham, Luke's genealogy of Jesus traces all the way back to the first man, Adam. And why? Well, Matthew wrote to the Jews who claimed Abraham as their father, whereas Luke wrote to the Greeks who exalted humanity, all of humanity. Luke's focus on Jesus' humanness proved to the Greeks that Jesus was the ultimate man. You could call him the superman. Jesus is my hero. How about yours? Father, thank you so much for your son